Toledo. Consider this. It's Wednesday, October the 28th, 1914. You're a young Muslim, one of the 14 or so million Muslims, in fact, living in Azerbaijan, in greater Russia. You remember this day particularly well because you're faced with a crisis, an internal crisis that forces you to question yourself, your existence, and your role in the world. You hear that on this day, the Ottoman Empire enters the war against Russia. The Ottoman Empire is siding with the Germans. The Khalif, the Sultan, declares war against Russia, England, and France. This sends ripples across the Muslim community. You know things are going to get tough. Will you fight for Mother Russia against the Muslims of the Ottoman Empire? You know that those in St. Petersburg already have an eye on you and your fellow Muslims because of your opinions on the Balkan War just last year. Your friends call it the Balkan butchery because Russia, your Russia, was ruthless in their fight against the Ottomans. But things are worse this time. You can feel it. Your friend quietly smuggles you a leaflet printed in Russian, which says, quote, I address this decree of the Caliph and the content of the fatwa to Muslim officers and soldiers serving in the Russian army. Leave the ranks of the Russian army, that most evil and implacable enemy of Islam, of the Caliphate, and of the Ottoman Empire. Join the friends of your Caliph. Join the forces of Austria and Germany, who will welcome you with open arms." End quote. You're faced with a difficult choice between your religious convictions and your political affiliations. What do you do? You would reach out to your Imams, but you know they're Tsarist officials, albeit turbans. They would tell you not to do anything against your motherland, Russia. They would quote the Quran to justify their positions. In fact, they promote servitude toward Russia as a sacred duty. They preach that to defend your land, regardless of the enemy, is the true war, the Jihad of Islam. And just like that, the seed is sown for over one million Russian Muslims to join the war against the Muslims of the Ottoman Empire. From Toledo Society, I'm Professor Saeed Khan, and this is 1400 OMG, your guide to what the hell happened in modern Muslim history. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series that looks into Muslims, the Middle East before and during World War I, and the creation of the modern Middle East. We'll be taking an aerial view of various parts of the Muslim world. We'll start in Europe, move to Turkey and Syria, and then on to North Africa and back to the Trucial States in the modern-day Gulf Cooperation Council. We'll also explore the events that led to an estimated 2.5 million Muslims to fight alongside the Allies against the Ottomans and the Central Powers. We start our journey in Europe. You're on a blimp, casually flying over parts of Europe, 
a couple of years before World War I. You hear rumors that the Ottoman Empire is losing most of its territories across the continent. It has affirmed its position as being the sick man of Europe. You realize that it is in fact true as you fly over the countries which make up the Balkan League. The First Balkan War of 1912 and 1913 has pulled the Ottoman Empire's full focus. The situation? The Balkan League, which is made up of Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, and Greece, forms to fight back against policies implemented by the Young Turks of the Ottoman Empire. The Balkan League considers these policies to be regressive. The Balkan League is able to drive the Ottomans back to focusing on the defense of Istanbul. The Balkan League is now in possession of Albania, Thrace, and most of the former Ottoman European land. The Ottomans regathered territories a year later in the Second Balkan War, but by that time, Ottoman influence in Europe was well and truly in decline. It's June 28, 1914. You're in Sarajevo, modern-day Bosnia. On any other day, you would be as likely to hear the Adhan penetrating the skies as you are to see people hustling and bustling at the market in Old Town, Sarajevo. But today is different. Today, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and his wife Sophie are visiting the city to inspect the Imperial Armed Forces. During his visit, a group of Bosnian-born Serb terrorists plan an assassination. The assassination that instigates World War I. The first attempt fails after one member throws a hand grenade at the open-topped car carrying the Archduke and his wife. The grenade bounces off the car and detonates away from the Archduke, wounding members of his entourage. The motorcade speeds to the town hall, where the mayor's planned welcome speech is interrupted by the Archduke, who says, quote, Mr. Mayor, I came here on a visit, and I am greeted with bombs. It's outrageous. Later, he decides to visit the wounded in the hospital. En route, the first three cars of the motorcade make a wrong turn onto a side street. The cars, attempting to reverse back onto the main road, come to a stop in front of a cafe, where one of the would-be assassins happens to be. Gavrilo Princip, just another member of the ultra-nationalist Serb group The Black Hand, being astonished at his opportunity, stepped out of the crowd and fired two shots at point-blank range. The first severs the Archduke's carotid artery, and the second hits his wife's abdomen. Both die within minutes. And thus began a tragic sequence of events that eventually led to the First World War. Austria declares war on Serbia, Russia, a Serbian ally, declares war on Austria, Germany declares war on Russia, and its ally France. Great Britain declares war on Germany, and so the war begins. You continue on your blimp. Now you fly down to Turkey, the center of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire decides to join the central powers, Germany and Austria-Hungary, due to a small group within the Committee for Union and Progress, led by Anwar Pasha. The Ottomans are confident in Germany's military strength and also fear Russian ambitions on the fringes of their empire, both of which are the leading reasons for this alliance. 
In October 1914, an Ottoman fleet based on a secret German alliance bombards Russian ports in the Black Sea. But more on the war in a few moments. First, we should gauge the situation within the Ottoman Empire. There are huge internal changes. The Ottomans are attempting to break economic dependence on foreigners and local religious minorities. They renounce the capitulations, introduce protectionist tariffs, and adopt measures to bring foreign enterprises under Ottoman jurisdiction, which also provides for tax revenue. They grant government contracts to Turkish Muslim entrepreneurs, and at the same time women enter the civil service and mainstream professions, mostly due to the fact that men are being esconded away in the army. Sharia courts are placed under secular state agency control, which gives women the right to initiate divorce and restricts the grounds upon which polygamy may be practiced. But as Ottoman society is changing so dramatically, the Ottomans face an invasion by the British, called Gallipoli. A year into World War I, 1915, you decide to stay with the Ottomans because you're about to witness one of the bloodiest battles in World War I. By this time, the British and the French have already suffered more than one million casualties. But Winston Churchill, in his role as First Lord of the Admiralty, fancying himself as a military strategist, serving as the First Lord of the Admiralty, makes a bold move that would eventually lead to nearly half a million casualties on the Turkish shores. Churchill decides to squeeze his naval fleet through the narrow Dardanelles in southwestern Turkey to seize Constantinople instead of invading Germany from the Baltic Sea. This would give Britain a clear route to their ally Russia and persuade countries like Greece and Bulgaria to join the Allies. The first step in Churchill's plan? Attack the Gallipoli Peninsula on the Dardanelles. The supposedly quick attack begins on February the 19th, 1915, and ends up lasting nine months. British and French battleships start with long-range bombardment. After the weather becomes worse, the ships are not able to detect mines in the waters. Three ships sink, and others are damaged. Admiral Carden of the Royal British Navy suffers a nervous collapse and is replaced. The naval attack fails, so the Allies launch a major land invasion. The force is made up of the Brits, many of whom are Indian Muslim, the French, and members of the Anzacs from Australia and New Zealand. The Turks, led by Mustafa Kemal, have the upper hand and also the upper ground, and they leave at least 46,000 allies dead with more than 200,000 others casualties. Around the same number is reflected on the Turkish side. You'd love to stick around for the Gallipoli memorials that will become a pilgrimage to many, but alas, there's more to see in the Muslim world. Before we fly over to Syria, here's what you may read on the Gallipoli memorial. Quote, Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now laying in a soul of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mehmets. To us, they lie side by side, here in this country of ours. Unquote. These words were spoken by Mustafa Kemal, a veteran of the Gallipoli campaign, who then goes on to become the founder of the modern Turkish Republic.
You fly across to Syria, where there are rumors of Arab notables being tried for treason and hanged by the province's Ottoman governor, Jamal Pasha. The Ottomans have called for jihad, urging Muslims throughout the empire to unite against the Triple Entente, and the vast majority of Muslims answer the call. However, the Ottomans become suspicious of Arab loyalties in Syria, perhaps because of the formation of Arab political and cultural societies before the war, or perhaps because the Arab Christians have close ties to France. Whatever is the case, Jamal Pasha becomes convinced that some Arab leaders are in secret contact with the Allies. He deports a large number to Anatolia and places others under house arrest in Jerusalem and Damascus. These events ultimately lead to an Arab revolt. But before we get there, never a dull moment on this blimp, fly now across to Egypt. You fly over Egypt. Surely Egypt, the mighty army of Egypt, is involved in the war, no? Enter the British, who have one concern, protect British interests by maintaining imperial communications. The British will not allow the Egyptian army to fight because Egypt has been under British military occupation since 1882. In short, the British need to protect the Suez Canal. But how? They need to expunge Ottomans from Ottoman territory and keep the French away from the Suez Canal and from British oil zones, which are fast emerging. To accomplish this, Britain declares Egypt a British protectorate in 1914, and, of course, martial law is imposed. Egypt becomes the launching pad for campaigns into Gallipoli and into Syria. But the Egyptians suffer. They are hit with high inflation and a shortage of basic consumer goods as the British use these resources to support the war effort. The Egyptian domestic political activity scene comes to a standstill. Turkey's entry into the war on October the 29th, 1914, immediately prompted the British to open a new military front in the remote Ottoman province of Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq. British troops, including many Indians, are sent to the Persian Gulf early. In less than a month, they capture Basra and Kurna and take 1,000 Turkish prisoners. The Brits move as close as 190 kilometers from Baghdad before the Turks are able to hold them off. 30,000 Turkish troops are sent to bolster the army and besiege the 8,500 British troops in Kut al-Amara. The siege lasts 147 days, and the Brits finally surrender. However, in 1917, the British return and finally capture Baghdad, advancing north to the heartland of the Ottoman Empire in Anatolia. After four years of fighting, when the war ends in late 1918, British troops have reached as far as oil-rich Mosul. We're now off to the Trucial states, roughly the modern-day Gulf Cooperation Council. Most of these states, or sheikdoms at the time, have signed treaties of cooperation with the British. Get a pen and paper ready, Abu Dhabi, Ajman, Dubai, Sharjah, Umm al-Qawain, Ras al-Khaimah, Fujairah, Dibba, Hamriya, Kalba, Hira, Kuwait, Bahrain, Oman, Aden, Yemen, 
Most of these have treaties dating back to the mid-1800s, bar a few. The idea is that these countries will not offer disposal of any territory except to the UK. There will be no relations with any foreign government other than the UK without UK's consent. And the UK pledges to protect the Trucial Coast from any and all aggression from the sea and will offer assistance from land attacks. That ends our first episode on World War I, which gives you a glimpse into the situation in the Muslim world as events unfolded. This sets the scene for the next episode, where we will take a deep dive into the Arab revolts that ultimately lead to the fall of the Caliphate. We will also review some of the important treaties and agreements that shaped the Muslim world for the 20th century. But before we leave, many Muslims are surprised that around 2.5 million Muslims fought for the Allies in World War I, mainly against the Germans, but some against the Ottomans as well. Those on the Western Front, in Africa, and in the Middle East, fighting for the British mainly came from modern-day Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Myanmar. The French had Muslims come from North Africa, Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. Oh, and let's not forget the 800,000 to 1.5 million Muslims from the Russian Empire, mainly from Central Asia. According to calculations made by the Russian press in 1917, one out of every six Russian soldiers was Muslim during the war. If you'd like to reach out to us, visit ToledoSociety.com.